came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views, I get confused. Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is the 10th of May 2018. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today we are speaking with Dr. Elena Hyde. Dr. Hyde will introduce us to the burgeoning worlds where data science and astronomy collide and how our meandering career path can lead to some amazing and unexpected understandings. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. And then we'll have a quick news roundup. So first we cross over to Sydney, Australia, to speak with Dr. Hyde. Hello, Elena. Hello. Today we are speaking with Dr. Elena Hyde. Dr. Hyde speaks four languages, has four undergraduate degrees in astronomy, physics, optical engineering, and planetary sciences. She has two master's degrees in engineering and astronomy and astrophysics, and a PhD in astronomy and physics. She's an artist, a cool coder, and shares her code on GitHub. So tell us about Eagle Creek, please, Elena. And tell us how you became interested in science in the first place. And did you have dark skies there in your backyard in Oregon? Thank you, Brendan. Uh, that's a wonderful introduction. I did occasionally have dark skies when I was a kid growing up in Oregon. But for those of you who may have heard of the West Coast of the U.S., it's, it's actually known as a very, very cloudy place. So uh, we had this running joke every year around the 1st of April that there was an unidentified flying object in the sky that was round and yellow that appeared one day and has never been, never been seen again since. I remember thinking that it was really clever when I realized what the sun was. And <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a really good, this is a really good joke. So I mostly had a good time fostering my love of puns, which all of my students in both astronomy and data science will no doubt love me for. <laughs> I didn't get to see very much of the stars at night, unless it was really a very clear night, which didn't happen terribly often. But I grew up on the coast of Oregon, which is a little town called Cannon Beach. It's a very picturesque seaside sort of town. Very, very cloudy. It gets sunny for about a month a year during the summer. 
and it was um, a wonderful place to grow up, very adventurous. I did a lot of building hobbies, so I did a lot of kind of engineering traps and things that I could, you know, play with my brothers and my sister and the neighborhood kids with. My So it was more of a, an engineering childhood than a, <laughs> strictly an as- astronomical one, but uh, we moved to a town more inland when I was about nine, a little town called Eagle Creek. While I was there, I started doing more work with, with odd jobs and did a lot of, you know, all the random things you do to make money when you're 13 and, you know, mowing lawns and fixing fences and cleaning people's houses and <laughs> yeah. uh, started looking at, you know, what I could do and where I could possibly go. And I sort of got introduced to astronomy when I started taking night classes out of the community college. And there was a bunch of night classes you could take, and I, I think I had a whole set of just random ones, and one of them was astronomy, and it was it was a really nice class. It was um, in a planetarium, of all things. And that sort of got me started in Oregon and kind of gave me a bit of a springboard into academia, if you will, because from the community college in the U.S. anyways, it's a lot easier to transfer to larger universities. And so I started sort of transferring myself up into universities that had, well, actually universities that had, you know, math and physics classes and things like that. Yeah, I must have been about 16, and I was trying to figure out if I could graduate early. So I was doing a bunch of arranging of paperwork and like, oh, will this work? Will that work? And I ended up finding out that there was a, a way that you could file for graduation from a community college and then transfer directly into a university. So that was kind of my starting path, which got me introduced to a couple of the ideas of like that astronomy and cosmology existed and that they involved math. And maybe I should learn some more of that. Very good. Did you have any early ambitions as a young child before you headed off to college or university? Did you have any ambitions when you were quite young and did those ambitions change over time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to be everything when I was a kid. I think I made a list. Yep. (laughs) Um, And I'm pretty sure literally every possible occupation was probably in there somewhere. I was probably more oriented towards arts and languages because of the, the material that I had access to. The educational system wasn't particularly strong, and I didn't have a lot of access to math or mathematical processes or, you know, a computer. (laughs) But uh, my mom had a lot of books, and even the little library that we had access to still had a, a good amount of books. And so I was able to go in and just, you know, read all the books in the library. And my mom had a bit of a connection with the artistic community. So she got me some drawing classes and I was doing a lot of sort of drawing and painting and crafting and making things that you could, you know, you could sell. For a little while, I had access to a, a foundry of all things because they had a, an aluminum smelter. So I was making cast aluminum objects. But it wasn't until quite a bit later that I realized I, I could actually kind of combine the two interests and and do things that were artistic and uh, scientific at the same time. 
Fantastic. Okay, so after your high school diploma at Portland Community College, you did physics and foreign languages at Portland State University. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so Portland State University was a really interesting place for me because a springboard for me because I was just coming out of the community college system and trying to find out where to go and what I could do. And so I started taking physics classes and I began an unfortunate trend of taking math classes really (laughs) out of order, um, like horrifically out of order. And I was mentioning I, I didn't particularly have a strong math background and my high school they didn't even have above really basic algebra. And I I didn't know my multiplication tables. That's pretty bad. (laughs) And so I tried to take a pre-calculus class without (laughs) anything. And it was was really, really hard, and I did not understand. But I passed it, and I was taking physics, and I was just like, this is so different. It's like a whole new planet worth of information. The concepts and the mental processes needed were so radically different from how my brain had ever functioned. It just completely floored me. And I was just like, I don't know anything about this. I, I have to know more. And so I started applying to other universities looking like, where could I transfer to, right? Yep. And so, you know, the next step is, okay, well, I want to go someplace where I can learn more about this stuff and really make a career out of this or something. And so I started looking around and I I had a really cool roommate at the time who was very, also very supportive and interested in learning and finding new paths and new ways of doing things. And she was studying anthropology and she was looking in, in other states. And the way the U.S. is set up, every state has its own system. Yep. And if you want to go out of your state, it's actually quite challenging because the costs increase substantially. And it's it's much, much harder to go to a different state, especially if you're, you know, working on jobs and, you know, not particularly making a lot of money. Yep. But eventually I started applying with the, the work that I had done in the community college and the work that I had done at Portland State. And my records were good enough that I could transfer pretty much anywhere I wanted. I really had a lot of fun with it because I, I got accepted into a few different places. And one of them was Harvard. And another one was the University of Arizona. And I actually chose Arizona over Harvard. Yep. And my mom was just <laughs> full. <laughs> Why? <laughs> And in retrospect, I'm actually extremely happy with that decision. I think it it was a really good choice for me because I had so much more hands-on experience. Yeah, I kind of leveraged that to go into the next step of learning and got myself down to Arizona in a little beat-up little car. I think this was one I paid 800 whole dollars for. I got down there and started studying. And because I was coming in from a, a new system, you kind of get to, to pick your own courses. And I, I registered for a whole bunch of third-year classes, but I, I still hadn't actually had calculus. <laughs> Fantastic. So down at the University of Arizona, you do a couple of bachelor's degrees in astronomy and physics with minors in optical sciences and planetary sciences, projects with archaeoastronomy. 
aerial photography and an interest in algorithms. Is this where you discovered your flair for mathematics? And perhaps you could tell us a bit more about your time at Arizona. I was there for five years, and the reason I, I spent so much time there was that there was so much to learn. It was just a great place. They had a, a really solid astronomy department that was an astronomy research department, but they also had an excellent physics department, which had its own astrophysics section. And it was right next to an excellent mathematics department, which had real high-level mathematics research going on. And, and this was right next to the University of Arizona Optics Department, which had the famous Dr. Roger Angel, who came up with the lobster eye x-ray telescope design and was a major player behind the mirror lab that's created mirrors for so many of the telescopes that we now use, these large eight-meter honeycomb mirrors. Yep. Uh, they were all built there. And the mirror lab itself actually was underneath the football stadium and you could go down there and watch the bats come out at night and, you know, <laughs> see what they're up to, um, what kind of crazy optics they've got going on. Wow. And all of this was right next to the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, which was also at the university and did a whole lot of interesting things, including the, the Phoenix mission for Mars and High Rise was actually being built while I was there. That building was right next to the NOAO, the um, National Astronomical Organization, and the actual public planetarium. And so you could just walk from one building to another and, and be involved in everything, which is why, you know, I ended up with four degrees instead of one. <laughs> Fantastic. Your thirst for knowledge leads you to get a Master's in Engineering at the famous Max Planck Institute in Germany, and this is quickly followed by another master's degree, this time in astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Amsterdam. Now, how did that come about? And would you like to share how you funded your extensive studies throughout up to this point? Yes, funding was always an issue for me. It wasn't coming from a background of any funds at all. But when I was in Oregon, there in the US, there was a program where you could get your tuition refunded. Yep. And some amount of money for books. So like, I think it ended up being about the cost of two or three books paid. <laughs> yep. But it was enough to allow me to get in that door. I eventually got a job as a secretary at foreign languages at the university. I started trying to negotiate loans, but I didn't know how the system worked. And the only way that I could figure out how to get a, a student loan that would actually not be really a terrible, awful thing was to go and work at the financial aid department. So in Portland, I was working at financial aid and I was working at foreign languages and I was working on the side. Yep. I was trying to crowdfund the food for my first year in Arizona, and it was reasonably successful. Um, we didn't know a lot of people with a lot of money, but I think in the end I got $2,000, which was enough to pay for a university meal food plan. Yep. But 
when I got in there, I also made sure to get a job at their financial aid department as soon as I got to Arizona. Um, and within the first year, I, I learned that the actual, there's, there's all these tricks, right? Yeah. And so if you're an out-of-state student coming in, what you have to do is you have to become an in-state resident as fast as humanly possible yep. because that will lower your tuition. So the first two years, I had to pay full out-of-state tuition, which was $20,000 a year, which obviously I, I couldn't have paid that. Yep. So that went into a loan. But by the third year, I'd gotten the residency. Yep. And so my tuition went down from $2,000. And that I could actually pay yep. with the jobs I was doing. And I made sure to work wherever possible in science. So, you know, working as a research assistant or working as a telescope operator or working as you know, something that was related to what I wanted to learn as well. Yep. As I was coming to the end of my studies in Arizona and I again, started looking around at different places I could go. But one of the things that I kind of noticed is all this work I'd done in Arizona, I had had a lot more trouble making money and getting savings than I had when I was in Portland because when I was in, in Oregon, I could do all of these arts and crafts. Yep. The arts and crafts actually were reasonably lucrative, not compared to an actual salary, but it was possible to make a couple hundred dollars in a week. Yep. And I thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I could get at least to the point where I can make enough with science as I, as I was making with art. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I looked for in a PhD and master's position was a salary. Um, yep. So actual funded position as opposed to an unfunded position. Yep. Germany had a very, very nice salary attached to their positions. And they offered me two different positions, and I got to sort of pick which one I thought would work best. Yeah. Up until that point, it was the best-paid job I'd ever had. And so I was quite keen to go and get the salary, and they also had reasonably good health care. I went out and I bought, I bought an iPod. Wow. <laughs> yep, an actual completely frivolous purchase. I went and bought an iPod for my then new boyfriend at the time, who's now my current husband. Very good. And then over to Amsterdam? Yes, done with my master's in Germany. There was an option to continue on to a PhD there, but I wasn't really happy with how the research had gone. And the long hours in science and academia are something that we don't really talk about enough. But it is extremely bad for your health. And, you know, when you're losing hair by the handful <laughs> and having blackouts and mm. you're getting awful health effects and you haven't, like, slept in four days and you start hallucinating and everybody else is doing the same thing, it's just like, wow, this is super unhealthy. And I think when Germany was the point where I really finally pushed my health too far. And I just said, you know, I, I can't keep doing this. I need to get back to something that's a little bit more reasonable and a little bit more sane. Yep. <laughs> um, and maybe get into a, a more constructive group and try to find a, a good working group. Because the, the people that you work with are very important. Oh, yes. And so I was looking around at that point, And my now steady boyfriend 
was in the Netherlands. And he said, well, they have an astronomy department here in Amsterdam. And so I applied to their Amsterdam program. And I went ahead and went straight into the master's program because the master's in Germany had been very technical engineering. And it, it hadn't left me with a good astronomical sort of set of stuff. And I I kind of needed that actual astrophysics master's to reset my brain and also my sort of whole life path. It was great because I was able to come in and go straight into the Dutch system, which was a beautiful little regulated system with, with actual courses that you take in the right order, which I didn't do in Arizona at all. Yep. <laughs> And I presume that German and Dutch were two of your four languages? Yes, that's correct. So let's talk about another language. You came out to Australia, and let's talk about your doctorate in physics and astronomy at Macquarie University in Australia. How did that move come about in 2010? And did you experience many language or culture shocks in that path from cloudy Eagle Creek to sunny Western Sydney? Absolutely. Biggest culture shock for me was certainly Germany. I had a lot of trouble adjusting there. But when I was going to the Netherlands, it was a much more flexible culture for me. And coming to Australia... I had never been here before. I had never, I'd only even seen pictures. I had no idea what to expect. And all I knew was that there was a university. I had an option of going to Swinburne in Melbourne or a a one in Sydney. And the one in Sydney offered me a salary. So um, (laughs) I was a little more inclined to take that one. I just showed up with a backpack. It was was a pretty big shock. The first month I I had a lot of trouble. I couldn't find out how to buy food. I, I didn't know where anything was and I had just huge issues with housing. After that my husband came and then a couple weeks later a big shipping container full of boxes came. Everything is just a little better here. Let's zoom in now a little and look at a bit of science in your career. Can you tell us a little about your PhD research focus and could you give us an outline of your research into galactic archaeology and for our listeners what is galactic archaeology please dr hyde oh thank you for the question i do love to talk about it just in case our listeners aren't familiar with the idea of galaxies our star the sun is is one of many, many stars that are inside the Milky Way galaxy. And, you know, whether you're in the northern or the southern hemisphere, you can look up and see it sort of stretching across the sky. And we see it as a band because we're inside it. Our sun is inside it. If we could zoom out and go way far, far away from our own star, we'd see that this Milky Way galaxy group of stars is actually more like a fried egg structure. And so you keep going out and you have a a group of stars in the center and you have many, many stars in in a a kind of a fuzzy plane around it. And you might have seen pictures of these type of galaxies. Usually they have a spiral structure. We think there's some sort of spiral structure to the Milky Way now. But the question that we want to answer is why 
do galaxies look like this? And why does our galaxy look like this? How were galaxies created? And there's very, very different shapes to some galaxies. Some galaxies are, are big blobs that are kind of circular. Some galaxies are have weird tails. Some galaxies are, are actually in the process of interacting with other galaxies. And so the question of how did galaxies form and what did they form from is the question of galactic archaeology. Yep. Because with galactic archaeology, we're sort of taking apart the existing structure to see what's underneath in the same way that an archaeologist might dust off the sand from some ruins. We're trying to look past the new stars into the older structures to see what was there before. Fantastic. It's a very exciting field. And by the end of your PhD research, you're also highly skilled in coding and building websites using quite a number of languages and processes. And you had a very productive time working with the Australian Astronomical Observatory as their information officer, researcher and support astronomer for the AAT at Siding Spring, where you did some fabulous Python coding solutions. Why is Python so popular with astronomers, Elena? Ah, okay, it's free. <laughs> um, and more than that, a lot of people are using it and sharing what they know. And that those two things of having people who are sharing existing code and having an overall sort of free structure has meant that the code base and what's accessible is, is building up almost organically. So Python is very, very successful. And if you go out from data science, you know, perspective of a, of a coder, a lot of the things that you can do in Python, you can also do in other languages like R, for example. And you will see places in business that primarily code in the R language. Yep. But in science right now, there really is a strong focus on Python because unlike, for example, like IDL, it doesn't require a license to connect to. Yep. So if you've ever had your IDL code stop working because your seven minutes of time were up and it couldn't access the server, then you know why Python is so popular. Indeed. <laughs> it can't do everything, obviously. But in conjunction with other things, it becomes even more powerful. And one of the, the really nice things is that you can run other languages and other commands and call them from within Python. So, for example, one of the things that we do a lot here at Serbian is we have a lot of data warehousing, which is a hugely, hugely powerful tool. And I, I cannot say enough to the astrophysics community about the importance of data warehousing. <laughs> because having a distributed warehouse means that your data is so much more accessible and your speeds are faster. And having something like a, the, one of the most popular types of warehouse is a SQL or SQL warehouse. Yep. And being able to query in SQL means that you can, you can query into a database. And one of my specialties right now is looking at the Google Cloud Platform 
and doing things like engineering database solutions on that cloud platform so that I don't have to hear the fans whir up on my local laptop every time I want to run a 100 petabyte query. Yep. So I can access that online database with Python code and call the SQL query from within my Python code, run that query on an external data warehouse that's hosted in the cloud, and just return a plot within a few seconds. Sensational. Um, yeah, it's really very powerful. And so, and Python is, a, is an integral part of that. So if I want to then make interactive visualizations or write some sort of scripting that alters my data flow and creates a dashboard, for example, I can do a lot of my scripting in Python. And then I could do some, maybe some advanced modeling and then return the model results so that I can have my Python code work with other components. And it just, it works really, really well with a lot of other different tools. And having something going in between to hold your, your structure together. Awesome. So your specialty now is using custom-built algorithms to extract information from huge data sets. Now, this is the face of modern astronomy. And every day almost, we're hearing of new instruments like the SKA and Meerkat coming online that generate exabytes of data so quickly that... We barely have time to interrogate loops of that data, let alone the whole lot. And we certainly don't have the storage capacity to save it for later analysis. Do we run the risk of simply losing really valuable data because our algorithms can only find what they're looking for? Or will your data warehousing and cloud computing provide some big data solutions for astrophysics? Yeah, I think in the, in the realm of exobytes, there, there is still a problem, right? There's definitely a, a big data problem to be solved. But if you process the data correctly, there's no reason to lose everything. And what I've looked at right now is I've kind of done a bit of a deep dive into the Google Cloud Platform and there are other cloud providers who've done similar things, but the way that they've set up their distributed network yep. for storage of truly massive amounts of information. And so if you want to be able to store this stuff in the way that astronomers are, are going like to do, you need to think about a system that allows for maybe maybe some sort of hashed table compression or something that's going to let you go in and actually store the information in a more effective way yep. so that when you run your queries, you're not running a query over an exabyte, you're running a query over a couple petabytes, right? Yep. Of course, as we get more and more data, we do get better and better data warehouses that we can access. And one of the things that I'm looking at right now is the GALA survey. I'm actually a member of the GALA survey currently, and I'm, I've been working on a paper with them for, for some time, so I, I should probably get around to publishing that. However, <laughs> publication delays aside, they are releasing huge amounts of stellar data, and they actually just had 
major public data release that came out, I believe, just yesterday. That's right. Um, yeah, very uh, exciting. Yesterday or, or the day before. Yep. And it's huge amounts of data, really, really powerful for chemical profiles. Uh, and I believe it's of 350,000 stars in the Milky Way. And the idea with these chemical profiles is that you can actually start to look at things like real chemical fingerprints for stars. And you have this beautiful idea about tracing back the history of stars and finding out where they came from and what groups they evolved with. So like our sun, for example. Our sun was formed in a big cloud of gas and dust with a lot of other stars. And those other stars that were formed out of that same cloud would have had a similar chemical fingerprint to our sun. So maybe we can find the solar siblings. And there's a bunch of people who've, who've done a lot on this. I, I have not done anything on solar siblings, just to clarify. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do find it a really interesting topic. You can look for so many different things in this data, which just makes it super exciting. So say, for example, you think that stars like our sun should have a better chance of forming planets like our Earth. Well, now we have a way to search for those. And just the amount of data available is already making me extremely happy because I've already actually loaded it into a cloud warehouse yeah. <laughs> just to have a play and see if I want to, you know, start a second paper before I finish the first one. There's going to be quite a few PhDs in that data release. Oh, absolutely. And there's, there's so much interest from the research community. It's really wonderful to see. I'm super happy to, to see it come out because I remember doing the commissioning for this survey. I think it's really nice when you can see a project kind of from the start to success. And, you know, you get to kind of see it grow and see the, see the instrument become more effective and see the data start to come out and, you know, all the little problems they had along the way. And, and now it's producing this wonderful data uh, that we can all go and use. Please do have a look, guys. Let's go back now and talk about career paths. Yours has been incredible. And would you like to talk a bit about the variety of career paths that both aspiring students might take and established researchers like yourself can take in both data science and astrophysics? Are they career paths that are mutually exclusive? That's one of my favorite topics at the moment because I, I really don't think they are. And right now I'm a full-time consultant at Serbian in Sydney, but I maintain my adjunct fellowship with Western Sydney University and I still publish. I still feel an active part of the astrophysics community. But when I go to sign up as a data science contact for people who are interested in starting careers, a lot of the lists or people I contact are like, you know, would say things like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry you've left. Or, oh, <laughs> I guess you're not an astronomer anymore. Yeah. Or, oh, I, you, oh, why did you leave astrophysics? And I'm like, well, I, I didn't. I'm still here. <laughs> so it's quite awkward because it seems to be a lot of black and white, like you're, you're in or you're out. I've always been a bit against that idea. I think that it's not conducive to the mental health of people who are looking for jobs and there are certainly employment opportunities inside and outside of academia 
on many levels. There's, there's technical employment. There's opportunities at telescopes. There's opportunities in research areas that maybe you might not have thought about. There's opportunities as technicians. In pure, purely academic university environments, there are substantially fewer jobs than you will find outside of that. And it's just good to be aware there are many, many, many options. And I've seen job offers from telescopes. I've seen job offers from engineering groups. I've seen job offers from, from research groups. And I've seen job offers from industry. Yep. Um, the fact that I'm currently with the industry one is a personal choice of mine. And I think that it's very good to tell people, hey, look, you know, there are a lot of different options out here. And if you, if you go ahead and try to think about which of the many, many, many you might like to apply for, you really broaden your whole scope. But in terms of getting started, I will say that if you are thinking about broadening your pathway, there are probably some very definite tools that you should be aware of. And just be aware that if, if you have done or you are doing a PhD, there are things you can do to set yourself up so that you're better prepared for a, a wider range of possibilities. Indeed. So as well as being a physicist, astrophysicist, data scientist and coder, you also love your art and it helped you pay your bills early on in your career. I've always said that great art is highly disciplined and great science is highly creative, but most people think it's the other way around. Tell us about your Current life in art, please, Dr. Hyde. Yes. So I, I actually completely agree with you there. I, I am extremely precise about my art. I tend to have a very exacting standard of what I want it to be. And until it meets that, I tend to refuse to let anyone see it. Yeah. <laughs> I share art very rarely because I, it's not part of my current monetary path. But it's, it's extremely valuable to me as a, a method of expression. I tend to work in pen and ink or oils or acrylics. It's basically like when you've got your code and it's, it's not only perfectly written, but it's perfectly commented and produces the exact graphical output that you needed with like the exact coloring. Yep. And, and then you're like, yes, this is this is working perfectly. It's a functional whole. And having the ability to pull together multiple parts to make that functional whole, it's the same process you use in coding, but in art it's it's a little more freeform and so it kind of does a bit of a, a reset on the brain, I think. There are a lot of reasons to do art, but in the end it's the same reason you should do astronomy. It's because you really want to. What a wonderful journey, Dr. Hyde. So what else is going on up in Sydney for you before I ask you to give us your favourite rant or rave? <laughs> okay, so what else is going on in Sydney? Well, I was a lecturer at Western Sydney University and their wonderful course, Cosmos, which I helped develop part of and it's still running, but I'm, I'm not currently lecturing it anymore. But if you do get a chance, it's a wonderful little course. And I actually was the lead instructor for data science at General Assembly. And I'm really looking forward to doing more public outreach in the data science area. 
and I've been invited to speak at the Yao um, Y O W Yao Data Science Conference next month. I should probably check on that. But I'm trying to work more in the data science and astrophysics space. Fantastic. And given the growth of the new instruments coming online, your skills are going to be very much in demand for decades to come. Now, the mic is all yours, Elena, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in education or equity, in outreach, as you mentioned, in our quest for knowledge or space. The mic's all yours. All right. Thank you very much, Brendan. You know, I do actually have a, a favorite rant at the moment. One thing that's really occurred to me a lot is the amount of work that we still have to do with diversity and diversity initiatives and supporting people from diverse backgrounds. And my primary rant at the moment is I don't think that people who are coming from really disadvantaged backgrounds are getting anywhere near the kind of support that they deserve, really. And I'm very sympathetic for people who, who do come from a lower income background trying to get into something like science, it is extremely difficult. And one thing you will see with with people who are from a more disadvantaged background or who are from a minority group and who have more obstacles to overcome is that this system that we have, it really wears people down over time. And it's, it's really hard to keep coming back and finding the same obstacles that you're just crushing against again and again and again. And whether it's not physically not being able to get to your classes because, you know, your $300 car broke down and <laughs> you yeah. have to walk eight hours or something, or whether it's, it's just getting really inappropriate feedback waiting for you, like maybe you don't belong in whatever science or you're wrong, well, you're not the usual kind of person we get in here. Yeah. The words that we use and how we express ourselves are so important. And the words that we use to people who are from diverse backgrounds are really important. That's my rant. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. We've come a long way, but we still have got a very long way to go. What we'd like to do now is warmly invite our listeners to follow at AstroHide on Twitter and follow her fabulous journey. And thank you so much, Dr. Elena Hyde. All right. Thank you for having me, Brendan. It's been wonderful. I hope I didn't rant too long. (laughs) (laughs) And anyone who is interested in data science or galactic archaeology, please do contact me. If you are having trouble getting into the field, I'm very happy to share personal tips and coding tips and resume tips. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure from my point of view. We'll talk again. Have a wonderful Friday night and a great weekend. You too, Brendan. Thanks. Bye. Now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very good, thank you. Great to be talking with you again. Uh, It's a pleasure to be talking with you as well. 
Have you got any of the rain that's currently stopping us from seeing all the wonderful night sky adventures that should be happening right now? Uh, are your dams filling or are you still relentlessly being beaten down by the sun? Our dam is drying out, but we did get 12.5 mil during the week. That was very welcome. 12.5 we might... mil? No! Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> that's a whole half inch in the old money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's nothing. That's nothing. Oh, gosh. So that's a morning dew in Queensland. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so it's been a bit like that. Everything was so badly clouded out that no one could see anything. And we've missed out on the moon being close to Saturn and then Saturn and Mars and then Mars. So that's all been a bit sad. So, yes, yes. Yeah, very good. Well, it has been a big week. We had the launch of the InSight mission. And yeah. we had the Australian government promise $50 million over four years for a new space agency. Yes, I saw that. And interesting to see what they're going to, to spend on it. Uh, sorry, what they're going to spend it on. Uh, are they going to make launch sites? Are, they, are we just going to look at ways to use other people's spacecraft? Are we going to uh, develop space industry in Australia? It will be very interesting to see what they do with that. The policy was due out at the end of April, so we'll just have to wait for the policy to come out. In terms of dollars and cents, so $12.5 million in a year will yeah. will buy every child in Australia uh, at least 20 Lego blocks, and they can all get together and build a model of the Curiosity rover. Okay, well, let's get stuck into it. Ian, Astroblog Musgrave, can you tell us what's up in the sky for this week? What's up in the sky for this week? So many nice things are happening this week. I mentioned last week that you can see in the afternoon, you can see Venus setting just as Jupiter was rising. And you'll see that again this week because Jupiter comes to opposition this week and is visible the whole night long. So Opposition is when the Earth is almost directly between the Sun and the outer planet. And so at this time, Jupiter is at its biggest and brightest as seen from Earth. But of course, because Jupiter's so far away and so big, its actual size and brightness doesn't change that much. But it is enough that it'll look really nice in telescopes now. So if you're in somewhere which has got a reasonably level horizon, and when you've got a good 360-degree view, you can see bright Venus setting and bright Jupiter rising. On the 21st, Venus and the, the open cluster M35 are close together. Now, M35 is normally an A-to-I cluster, although because it's relatively low on the horizon, you'll probably see it best with a pair of binoculars. Although, as I said, Venus is rising higher and higher. It's now visible after full dark, although it's very low on the horizon at full dark. So but as the twilight deepens, really, uh, a decent pair of binoculars, you'll be able to see on the 21st Venus close to M35. And this comes after a spectacular pairing of Venus and the Moon on May the 17th and May the 18th. The thin crescent moon brackets Venus, so initially on the, on the 17th, it's the Moon uh, close to the horizon below Venus, and then on the 18th, the Moon is above Venus. And also, as you're watching, you'll be able to see over the coming week, Venus is uh, leaving behind the bright red star Aldebaran and the Hyades cluster as that sinks into the horizon. 
but it's heading towards the two bright stars that form the horns of Taurus, the bull. And towards the end of the week, you'll see Venus shoot through uh, between, uh, between, or shoot in the sense that it will move slowly night, past, uh, night after night through the pair of these two bright stars. So that will be uh, really interesting to, to watch over the coming nights. So the movement of Venus will be very nice to watch. On the other hand, Jupiter isn't moving so much, although it is coming closer to the, the bright star in Libra Alpha, one uh, Libra otherwise known with the wonderful name Zubinor Googly, if you could pronounce that. Now, this is an excellent time for watching Jupiter. At opposition, Jupiter is at its highest level above the northern horizon around about midnight. It's quite high above the northern horizon. With the unaided eye, it's a beautiful golden colour. In binoculars, you'll see this wonderful dance of the moons, and there's now, uh, now a number of different moon events occultation behind jupiter or going through jupiter's shadow and also passing in front of jupiter with binoculars you won't see too much of this although you can see uh, the moon twink out but in a small telescope these will look very nice indeed of course in a small telescope you'll be easily able to see the bands of jupiter and to some degree the great red spot the great red spot has been fading over the past decade and it's now a sort of light pinkish colour rather than the, the deeper red it was before. Something that you also might like to try is to see Jupiter's moons with the unaided eye. Jupiter's moons, the Galilean moons, are bright enough to be seen if they were just floating around by themselves. They'd be bright enough to be seen with the unaided eye. But of course, because they're quite close, Jupiter's light drowns them out. So one thing you can do, however is to find the nights when Jupiter and its moons are uh, at their greatest distance and then find a, a, an object like a solid wall or something and move, uh, move your eyes so that Jupiter just vanishes behind the solid wall. And if you've got a dark sky and a good eye adaption, you should be able to faintly see Jupiter's moons with their further extent from Jupiter. Sounds good. Although Jupiter's best around midnight, it's still good in telescopes before then. But you'll also be noticing now that below the J-shaped curl of Scorpio, you'll see two bright objects. The golden one is Saturn, and the bright red one is Mars. Mars is getting brighter and brighter ahead of its opposition two months away yep. in July. Now, Saturn is at opposition next month. And Mars opposition a month after that. So we've really got good sky wonders. Jupiter's at opposition now. Then the next uh, gas giant, Saturn, will be at opposition, followed by Mars. Three beautiful objects. Over the, the weeks, I've been telling you about uh, Saturn and the globular cluster M22. M22 is a reasonably bright globular cluster, which can be seen with the unaided eye. It's quite nice in binoculars or a small telescope. Now, Saturn's quite close to that. And for the first half of May... Saturn's within about uh, one degree of M22. And so you, know, you can see them together in a wide field scope. And on the 15th, Saturn will be as closest to M22. Again, it, it's not very close, and you will need a wide field lens to see it. Yep. Now let's move on to Mars. Mars is now clearing the horizon reasonably before midnight. Now it's in sort of very uninteresting territory, but it's heading towards the border of, of uh, Sagittarius and Capricornius. 
And on the 14th and 15th, uh, Mars comes close to the globular cluster M75. Again, this is going to be interesting but a bit difficult to see. M75 is a rather faint globular cluster, unlike M22, which can be seen with the unaided eye. Uh, M75 can only be seen with uh, telescopes. And you'll see that the pairing of them together over that time. Uh, but they're reasonably close and would be an interesting astrophotography target. But again, you've got to juggle the fact that Mars is, is so much brighter than M75 that getting good images of it will be quite, will be quite difficult. Yep. But what's happening in the morning, you may say? Okay, tell us. Mercury has been sitting by itself in, in splendour. It's at its best for Southern Hemisphere audiences in the last month and beginning of this month. It's quite bright and it's quite high above the horizon. You can easily see it an hour before sunrise. And through a small telescope, you can see Mercury as a distinct half-moon shape. On the May the 14th, the thin crescent moon will be very close to, to Mercury, making a very beautiful sight in the early morning. Very good. And meanwhile, Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? Well, I, I have a, a, a quite a, a linked tangent. As you know, the InSights spacecraft has headed off to Mars and it will be on its way and, will, and it will be arriving uh, later on in the year. But at the moment, Mars is at its equinox. And so if you're looking through a telescope at the moment, you probably won't see anything because Mars is below the horizon. Uh, but if you wait until Mars rises, you should be able to see the southern polar cap quite nicely. And by the time InSight arrives at Mars, the southern polar cap will have shrunk greatly. And this is because the southern polar cap is mostly composed of carbon dioxide. Yep. Even though there's water or ice in them, a lot of the polar caps are mostly uh, carbon dioxide. It evaporates quite rapidly. Uh, by the time InSight arrives, the summer will be well underway. And so what is the link between Mars and the very faint comet uh, C slash 2017 K2, you may ask? Um, carbon dioxide. You'll have to tell us. We know that comets can be thought of as either snowy dirt balls or dirty snowballs, depending on the ratio between dust and ice. But we forget that the dust in comets is a mixture of the things we think of as, as dust, silicates, and tarry hydrocarbons. And that the ice in the comets is not just water ice, but it's also methanol, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, nitrogen, and methane. And so what's happening is that the comet C slash 2017 K2 passed us. Uh, has a very high level of carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide ices, and this uh, activity we're seeing is uh, driven by carbon dioxide, not by water, as many of, uh, of our other uh, closer short-period comets uh, are. We, we see most of their activity. It's largely um, water vapor driven, although carbon dioxide plays an important role. The, this record-breaking comet is mostly being driven by carbon dioxide. That's so cool. The next time you have a fizzy drink and are watching the bubbles rise, you're, you're, you have a deep link between yourself, what's happening at the South Pole of Mars, and a distant record-breaking comet. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, no worries. It's my pleasure to bring these mind-boggling facts bubbling to the surface. <laughs>
Okay, at this stage, we'll warmly invite listeners to follow Ian at Ian F. Musgrave on Twitter and just find Astroblog or Astroblogger on the internet. And also the Southern Skywatch is a good place to find Ian's monthly summary of what's up in the sky. Indeed, indeed. Um, and also, if you're following me on Facebook, I have uh, a Facebook page called Southern Skywatch, where if you follow me on Twitter, you'll get not only lots of the latest science about uh, space, astronomy, science alerts, but you'll also get the parrot of the day as well. So if you're not interested in the parrot of the day, you can follow me on Facebook, follow my Facebook page where you'll only get astronomy-related stuff. Fantastic, and people can also find Astrophys on pretty much every social media platform there is. Very definitely so. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ian. Great speaking with you again. Uh, It's been a pleasure speaking with you and looking forward to our next chat. Until then, clear skies when you don't need the rain and cloudy skies and rain when you do need the rain. (laughs) Very good. Thanks, Ian. Cheers. Here are a couple of news highlights. The Breakthrough Listen Project has signed up for 1,500 hours of observation time in 2018 with the multi-beam receivers on the DISH, CSIRO's famous Parkes telescope, and the recent tech upgrade with the multi-beam receivers will see scientists processing about 130 gigabits per second of observational data from deep space. Meerkat update. The 64-dish South African radio telescope Meerkat, which is a precursor to the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA, is complete, having achieved first light some time ago and already generating exciting observational data. NASA's Mars InSight mission was launched last Saturday from Vandenberg Air Force Base because the launch queue at Cape Canaveral was too long. InSight arrives at Mars on 26 November later this year, after several Rich Purnell manoeuvres. Next episode, we speak with Jesse Christensen, a NASA scientist working with the Kepler and TESS exoplanet missions. And finally, the Australian government has allocated 40-odd million dollars for a space agency. The policy has not been released yet. It's a piddling amount, but it's a start. We will dissect this policy when it arrives and look at the local implications for both industry and education. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave.